and we'll give it uh, 10 seconds here. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. The date is May 12, 2009, and we at Accessible World are so very proud to welcome all of you to our special programs series. Beyond Surviving to Thriving, Lessons from 9-11. Far from being an increasingly distant event from our collective history, the lessons of 9-11 are vital for successfully coping with the chaos of today's economic climate. According to Michael Hinkson, World Trade Center survivor, quote, this country is undergoing a radical attack of, on the status quo as people are confronted with radical changes, whether changes in livelihood, financial status, or the competitive environment, many of which are confusing and painful, end of quote. Safety, security, in the traditional ways of doing things have been stripped away. To some, Michael Hinkson is another person with a, quote, disability. For those who know his amazing story, his superior, quote, abilities, end quote, enabled him to successfully navigate through the chaos of the terrorist attacks of 9-11. Michael and his wonderful guide dog, Roselle, led a group of people down from the 78th floor of the World Trade Center to safety moments before the building collapsed. His, quote, disability, end quote, blindness became an asset. His teamwork with Roselle saved his life and the lives of those with him. For Michael Hinkson, teamwork and overcoming adversity are not optional. It is my privilege, my great privilege and honor to present to you a true American hero and my friend, Mr. Michael Hinkson. We'll unlock this and give the mic over to Mike. Menu actions, menu, mute, lock, talk. Thank you, Bob. It's a pleasure to be here and thank you all for coming out on a Tuesday evening to hear from uh, from me and from each other, I want this to be somewhat of a of a discussion, and uh, and not just to be me talking alone. I would like to start, however, by talking a little about the World Trade Center, as well as what happened on 9/11, and <clears throat> also a bit about moving forward from the day of the terrorist attacks. For the last seven and a half years, I have done a lot of traveling around the country and around the world, speaking and talking about my experiences. I've been asked to come and tell the story numerous times. And every time I do, what I find is that people are really asking the same kinds of questions, namely, not only what happened on 9-11, and they asked that in a, in a very serious way, what happened to you, what happened to the people inside, because mostly we don't hear about that. But also, 
are there lessons that we should have learned? Are there lessons that we did learn? Are there still lessons that we can learn about what happened uh, on September 11th in the World Trade Center as well as in the Pentagon and with the plane that crashed in Shanksville, Pennsylvania? I think there are a lot of lessons that we can learn. I think some individuals learned lessons. I think, however, that a lot of us collectively either learned lessons and forgot them or didn't really get it. And so hopefully talking about it will will make that uh, point come back to us all and maybe we'll think about it a little bit more. So let's look at a little bit before 9-11. 9-11 was a, was a typical day and certainly in the months before 9-11 we had a presidential election. And although it was a controversial election, the election was held, the election was settled, and we had a president in power. Uh, and uh, so the government moved on as it, as it usually does, and people kind of just did things as, as they always do. We kind of all lapsed into a sort of status quo environment, something like what Bob mentioned earlier. I think that wasn't just true here. I think that was true in uh, other parts of the world as well. There were, however, forces gathering and preparing to force us to change the way we looked at the world. On September 11th, it was, a, it was a typical kind of a day for a lot of us. For me, it started early in the morning. It started at about 12.30. We had a thunderstorm in New York City and in the surrounding area. We lived at the time in Westfield, New Jersey. The reason the thunderstorm was significant was that Roselle, my guide dog at the time, my fifth guide dog, who had been with me about 22 months, so she was about um, 38 months old, 40 months old, I guess. Roselle had um, developed this phobia of thunderstorms. So whenever the thunder and lightning started, she would start to shake and shiver and just really didn't like any of that. So we would go down into our basement where I had my home office. I would turn on a stereo and turn the computer up loud and, and try to mask out as much of the thunder as we could so that she would be a little bit more comfortable. She would be under my desk and kind of stay there. The thunderstorm that night was extremely violent, and it went right over there, our house. So nothing that I could do would really mask all of the sounds. The storm lasted about an hour and a half, and then it uh, passed us by, and we went back up and uh, went back to bed. We had been in bed when the storm first hit. The 11th was supposed to be a pretty interesting day for me. I was the manager of the regional sales office for a computer company, Quantum Corporation. So I was regional sales manager and had a staff of sales and support people. On September 11th, we were going to be conducting a special training session. So we had 50 guests coming in that day in one of four different training classes that we were going to be conducting. My staff was out. The only other person who was going to be in the office that day was a colleague from our California office, David Frank, who was there to kind of monitor because he had some accounts who were going to be represented. He had responsibility for some of the people who were going to be there. So he wanted to know what went on and have a chance to meet with them since he didn't get back to the East Coast all that often. Well, we got to the office um, uh, pretty much on time, although I had expected to get there earlier. But as happens from time to time, the best laid plans. In our case, the subway system was running late because a train broke. Who knows why? And so instead of getting to the office about 7, as I had 
anticipated so that I could be there before everyone else. We got to the office about 7.50 in the morning. About the same time as a gentleman arrived from the cafeteria of the World Trade Center in Port Authority, which was on the 44th floor of our building. So I opened the office and let him in, and he went into our conference room where we set up breakfast for the people who would be coming in that day. Then I went into my office to begin preparations for the session itself. Specifically, <coughs> what I needed to do was to get a PowerPoint show completed, which I did, and then we set it up in the conference room where we would be showing the, the presentation. I was going to be doing this PowerPoint show. I developed uh, ways of doing that as, as a blind person. The computer talked, of course, and I had a script all prepared. And, and uh, so doing that was no big magical thing. The PowerPoint show was intended to teach some of the people who were going to be in a lot about our products. And specifically, the people who were going to be there were resellers who would buy our products and sell them to uh, their customers. Anyway, guests started to arrive. And at about 8.30, the last guest of the uh, the early group was there, not of the first class, but we had some folks who were going to be arriving before many of the others. We expected to have about uh, 20 people at the first session, but the first six had arrived, some of the early birds. They were in our conference room. David was there. He got there about 8 o'clock. David and I were in my office finishing some preparations for people to be able to come into the World Trade Center and into our, our demonstration. If you visited the World Trade Center after the bombings of 1993, the only way you could get into the towers and uh, up to any office was to be cleared by security. And security would clear you in one of two ways. Either you had um, your name on a list that was already at the security desk, or security had to call up to the office where you were going to visit and get approval for you to come. Then, before you could go through, they actually took a photo ID, so they stored your picture, and they gave you an ID tag that you had to wear around your neck, and it was the only way you could get into the elevators and up to the higher floors. So we were creating a list of the people who were going to be in so that security wouldn't have to call us every time someone was uh, coming into the building. <coughs> At 8.45, we were just finishing that process of getting the names ready for the security people when we felt the building shutter kind of gave a lurch. We heard a mild explosion. And then the building literally began to tip. Imagine that you're at the top of something, and it starts to tip over from the bottom. So you're at the top, and it's starting to tip and tip and tip. And that's exactly what happened to us. Tall buildings like that are actually very flexible in a relative sort of way. They were made to be able to spring if they were buffeted by winds or if they were um, struck by uh, an object like an airplane. The Empire State Building had been hit in 1937, so it wasn't something that was new conceptually. So buildings were made to be a little bit flexible and have a little bit of give to them. And what happened, as we know now, was that when the plane hit the building, it started to push the building, and so the building began to tip. It blew a hole through the entire building because of the fuel explosion and so on, and um, continued to tip. David and I were in my office, as I said, and we kind of just stopped and asked each other, what was that? What happened? What's going on? We felt the building move. As I tell people, we actually moved about 20 feet before the building stopped. But in that time, 
having been raised in Southern California among earthquakes, I knew that this wasn't an earthquake because earthquakes will usually just jostle you back and forth. This was moving in one direction. I went to the doorway because that's the best place to stand in the case of an earthquake or uh, any such place. Physicists will tell you that an archway is, is the sturdiest part of a room. So it's the best place to go. It's more reinforced than just standing by a wall or whatever. So I was standing in the doorway. David was, was over by my desk. Roselle was asleep under my desk. And we stood there and again asked each other what happened and had no idea. <clears throat> we both thought that we were going to fall to the street because the building kept moving and moving and moving. And in fact, we said goodbye to each other. And then the building stopped. It stayed where it was for a few seconds. And then it started to move back the other way. So it was straightening itself up. We stood there, just literally holding our breaths. And then the building got to be vertical again. I left the doorway, went into the office, and met Roselle coming out from under my desk. I took Roselle's leash, and I told her to heal, <coughs> which was a command that would tell her to come around onto my left side and sit, which she did. She's wagging her tail and yawning. About the time Roselle sat, the building dropped straight down about six feet. As we know now, the expansion joints were contracting, which is what they were supposed to do. So after the uh, building did that, David let go of his position by my desk. <coughs> Excuse me. He then looked out the window and saw that there was fire above us. He started to yell, oh my god, there's fire and smoke above us. Mike, we got to get out of here right now. There's fire and smoke, and there are millions of pieces of burning paper falling outside the windows. And I could hear stuff falling outside our window. I wasn't smelling smoke, and of course I wouldn't because the fire was 18 floors above us, as we know now. So I believed, however, everything David said and knew that we needed to evacuate. As a blind person, and as the manager of the office I was in, I felt it was my obligation to be able to do whatever anyone else who was a manager would have to do. So that included making sure that I knew where the exits were, making sure that I knew what the evacuation procedures were, made sure, making sure that I knew how to move around the World Trade Center. And I did a lot of that not just because of an emergency situation, but it was my job to be able to go wherever I needed to without a lot of difficulty. So I had to make sure that if I wanted to go visit a customer, I knew where their office was. If they said they were on floor 4625 of Tower 2, I needed to be able to get to the 46th floor and suite number 4625. That's not necessarily something that everyone knows how to do, but it's something that we all should learn to do as, as cane users or dog users. We should be good travelers. And, and I knew that as the manager, it was important for me to be able to do that, because if I was going to look managerial and act managerial and be the manager and be the leader of the office, I had to do that sort of stuff. So it wasn't just learning the World Trade Center. It was learning how to get around quickly in the World Trade Center, and sometimes learning shortcuts that most people didn't know about, which was a lot of fun. So I knew a lot of what to do in the case of an emergency, certainly knew where all the stairwells were and knew how to travel down the stairs. I should say using a guide dog, I don't want my guide dog to know how to find a stairwell. Because if the dog only knows how to find one stairwell, what if that stairwell happened to be um, on fire or blocked in some way? If the dog didn't know how to get to some other stairwell, then we would have a serious problem. But more important, it isn't the dog's job to know how to get to a stairwell. That's my job. The dog's supposed to follow directions and get us there. 
And it's my responsibility to issue commands, which is also a way that I get to help make sure that the dog, in this case Roselle, continued to feel comfortable by being able to issue commands and issue them in a good calm voice and so on. So anyway, when David started to shout that there was fire and smoke, I kept saying, David, slow down. We're going to leave, but we need to, to do it in an orderly way. And he kept saying, no, Mike, you don't understand. There's fire and smoke above us. We've got to get out of here right now. The millions of pieces of printing paper falling outside our windows. And our guests began to scream. They started moving toward our exit. And I kept saying, slow down, David. <coughs> Finally, Finally, I got um, David to focus and uh, got him to agree to take our guests to the stairs and start them down the stairs. So as he left to go do that and as he left to escort our guests, I picked up my phone on my desk to see if there was still phone service and so on. We had power, so I figured we probably had phone service, and we did. So I called my wife to tell her that there had been an explosion or something that we were leaving the building. So we then talked for a second and uh, she asked what was going on. I said, I don't know, but we're going to be leaving. And then about that time, David came back. So I hung up the phone. We took a sweep through the office to make sure no one else was there. And after we checked the entire suite, we went to the stairs and we started down. As we went down the stairs, a number of things occurred. The first thing was that we began smelling an odor as soon as we hit the stairwell and started down. It took me a couple of floors, and I realized eventually it was a smell that was very familiar because I did a lot of traveling even then for the company as, as I would travel and being around airports and so on. I got very used to the smell, which was the smell of burning kerosene, burning jet fuel. Actually, it was the fumes from burning fuel, which makes sense now that you look back on it that the fumes had gotten into the stairwell. The fire wasn't there. We didn't have smoke, but the fumes were there. They were permeating the building pretty fast anyway through the air conditioning system. So I observed to the people who were around us, there were about eight or nine folks at the time, we must have been hit by an airplane because I'm smelling the fumes from burning jet fuel. And they said, yeah, that's what we're smelling. We weren't sure what it was, that, but you're right, it's burning jet fuel. So we knew that we probably had been hit by a plane, at least we assumed it. As we walked down the stairs, there were a couple of instances where near us on the stairs, um, people shouted, hey, move to the side. There's a burn victim coming through. We need to, uh, to let this uh, person by. And what happened is that in both instances that I recall, we had someone surrounded by a group of people, somebody who was, um, was badly burned over parts of their body, and they were walking down the stairs. They were both ambulatory. They were able to continue to go down the stairs um, but, but needed help. So, so they were getting the help. They were surrounded by people. And so we had these two groups of people pass us on the stairs. And after the second one passed us by, uh, I think we realized how bad it really had to be above us, because we really still had no clue. And um, so I think we all realized it because after the second group passed us, a woman on the stairs near us stopped, and she said, I can't breathe. I can't go on. We're not going to make it out of here. And I, um, and, and all of us stopped. We just had a group hug. We surrounded her, and we hugged her and said, look, come on. We're in this together. You can keep going. We can do it. And she was able to go on down the stairs uh, from that, I think. Uh, as far as I know, she made it out. I have no reason to believe that she did not. 
but she was able to keep walking. <clears throat> but then my friend David, Frank, who was with me on the stairs, said, Mike, we're going to die. We're not going to make it out of here. And I said, stop it, David. If Roselle and I can go down these stairs, so can you. He told me later that snapping at him like that was able to kind of bring him out of his funk. But he did then. He then did something that I thought was really unique, um, and I think helped a lot of people. I think um, what he did that was extremely interesting was that David then walked on down the stairs a floor ahead of us and started shouting up everything that he saw on the stairs. So he would count down the floors as he got to them, and he would tell us if he saw anything or if the stairs were clear. He acted kind of as an advanced scout for everybody on the stairs above him. So he was counting down like floor 48, 47, 46. Everything's clear. Everything is okay. Don't see anything on the stairs. He told me that that was his way of focusing on something other than his fears. I know that he was the focal point for a lot of people above him. So he was kind of an advanced beacon, if you will. And people paid attention. People listened. He helped a lot of people by doing that. And I don't even know if today he realizes how much he probably helped folks. I worked um, on not being afraid by focusing on Roselle. I knew that she had to be sensing that there were a lot of nervous people. She wasn't sensing, I think, any danger. And that was mostly evidenced by what happened when we were still in our office. Remember I told her to sit, and she did. And then David was seeing all the fire and smoke. When I told David to slow down, don't panic, we're all going to make it out, and, and so on, one of my big cues that we weren't in an instant danger was the fact that my guide dog, Roselle, wasn't indicating to me that she felt in danger in any way. She was wagging her tail. She was yawning. She wasn't trying to get away. She was just being focused. She wasn't acting nervous. So I knew from her actions that we could try to work at that instantaneous point in time to get out and be safe. When we went down the stairs, if I had started acting nervous, that would have made it very difficult for her because she's tuned to me, of course. And so if I had acted nervous, then she's going to get nervous. So it was really important for me to stay focused so that she'd be okay. So as we walked down the stairs, I kept telling her, good girl, you're doing a good job. And by me focusing on her, that helped me make sure that I didn't get nervous going down the stairs. It's a team kind of thing. And I'm going to come back to this whole concept of teamwork and interdependence. But that's what, what we did. And working together, we helped each other. Certainly, it also helped a lot of other people who I know saw us on the stairs. I've seen a lot of uh, writings about people's escape from the towers and a number of times it, it's mentioned there's a blind person with a guide dog. There was another person with a guide dog who was eight floors below us in the tower. I'm sorry, uh, yeah, eight floors below us in the tower um, who also did escape. But a lot of people did see us, I know, as we went down the stairs. In any case, David kept counting down. And uh, meanwhile, I actually did have one fear that it was really worried about. And that is, this is something that I didn't even think about for a while. But I eventually realized that I had this concern as I was going down the stairs that although we had power and air conditioning and so on, at some point there was the possibility that we were going to lose our power. And if that happened, I'd be stuck on the stairs with a whole bunch of people who were blind and couldn't find their way out because they didn't know how to function without light. So I did tell people at one point going down the stairs, hey, don't anybody worry. If the power goes out and we lose our lights, Roselle and I are here, and we're offering a half-price special to get you out today only. And, and I did that intentionally 
because I wanted people to at least hear and, and hopefully remember there was a person with a guide dog and we didn't care whether the lights were on or not. Fortunately, that never did become an issue. So we kept going down the stairs, finally got to the 30th floor. And when we got there, David got there, of course, first. He told us that the firemen were coming up the stairs. When we, uh, when we heard that, I went on down to where he was. And he told me that he could see the firemen. They were still coming up the stairs. I learned much later that it took them about a minute to go from one floor to the next. Because as David described it, they were all carrying their heavy protective equipment. And they were wearing their clothing and so on. And they were carrying all the equipment they needed to fight the fires. As David said, they might be carrying like 100 pounds of stuff. I don't know if they had that much. But they, they were carrying a lot of stuff. And they were going up the stairs. But when the first one got to us, he stopped and he said, hey, are you okay? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, we're going to send somebody down the stairs with you to make sure you get out okay. And I said, hey, look, I've come down from the 78th floor. You can't get lost going downstairs. Don't worry about me. Of course, I was more focused on, on him. I wanted him and all of his colleagues to go up and fight up the fire because I didn't want to be responsible for one of them taking us and them being a person short. Anyway, he was pretty insistent. And finally, I said, look, I got my guide dog here, Roselle, and we're in good shape. And, he petted, started petting Roselle. Of course, you know, from my perspective, it wasn't time to say don't pet a guide dog in harness. He's a fireman going up the stairs to save us, for heaven's sakes. So I um, just said, look, we really are OK. And he said, oh, yeah, we're going to send somebody with you. I said, look, I got my friend David here who can see. We're OK. You guys go on up. And, um, and he was able to uh, then realize that maybe we were capable of doing it. And so he went on up the stairs. We continued on down the stairs. David assumed his scouting position again. When we got to the bottom, or when David got to the bottom, he announced that he was there. We were a floor above him. And uh, he told us that there were a lot of sprinklers on, and there was a, a, literally a curtain of water across the entrance to the stairwell. So that was either to keep fire out or keep it in. If it was on the stairs, to keep it out of the lobby. And if there was fire in the lobby, to keep it out of the stairs. We didn't have fire in either case, so it was OK. But that was part of the safety precautions. So David told us he had this curtain of water in front of him, and then he was gone. We got to the first floor. This torrential downpour was in front of me. I just told Roselle to go forward and use the command hop up to speed up and go faster. And we went through the curtain out into the lobby, which was ankle deep in water, and which contained people who were all yelling, go this way, go this way. And they were not letting anybody to go out. They weren't letting anyone go outside. They were having everyone go through the lobby into the central part of the World Trade Center complex. On the first floor, that central area was a shopping mall with all the usual things like drug stores. There was a Hallmark store. There was a Radio Shack. And there were several food concessions. There was a 24-hour passport photo place and all sorts of stuff. Typically, there were thousands of people going through that, some just going from building to building, because the World Trade Center was composed of several towers, as, as you may know. That time, though, on the 11th of September, about 9.35, 9.40 in the morning, it was totally empty. So we ran through, under direction, we ran through the, the central area, the shopping mall, finally up a short escalator, and got outside <coughs> the, um, the tower. So we finally made it into sunlight at 9.45 in the morning. First thing we were told was that we needed to leave the area. Before we did, David looked around and he said, Mike, I see fire in the second tower. You see, we had no idea what had happened. We didn't know that there was a second airplane that had hit the second building. We thought, gee, what was going on? Did, uh, did another plane hit? 
Did the fire just jump across from our building to the other building? Where'd that fire come from? We had no idea. What we did was to leave the complex as told. We literally just walked across the street and then circled back around because what we wanted to do was to get on Broadway in order to go up toward Midtown Manhattan. We got to Broadway, we turned north, we started going up Broadway. We got um, to Fulton Street, crossed Fulton Street, then we continued to walk up Broadway. We were on the left side of Broadway, so we were on the west side of the street because the right side was the World Trade Center complex. We got to the next street after Fulton Street and stopped. David wanted to take some pictures because we were literally diagonally right across from Tower 2. So we stopped. David took some pictures. I got my phone out. I tried to call my wife Karen on my cell phone. I wasn't able to get through because the circuits were all busy. They were busy, of course, because there were a lot of people in the upper floors of both buildings who were trying to call loved ones and so on. Um, and it was going to be their last phone call. We didn't know that, of course. Anyway, I had just put my phone away, and David was putting his camera away when a police officer who was near us just yelled, Get out of here! It's coming down right now! We heard this rumble that literally quickly became this deafening roar, and it was the, the Tower 2 building right diagonally across the street from us, less than 100 yards away, that was collapsing. Now, keep in mind that it was over 400 yards tall, and we were only about 100 yards away from it, and it was coming down. Everyone turned and ran. No one was helping anyone. The sound, as I can best describe it, is kind of a combination of a freight train and a waterfall. You could hear the glass tinkling and breaking and metal ripping apart and collapsing and breaking and falling down. And then there was this just steady rumble. So a freight train and a waterfall, if you can imagine that sound, is probably the best description I can give you of what we heard. Everyone was, was running in different directions. I literally turned Roselle around, bodily picked her up, turned her around, and started running back south on Broadway. Now there was a building right to my right-hand side. We, side. we stayed as close to the building as we could because we were under a small overhang. And we just ran, and I kept telling Roselle, hop up, hop up, keep going faster. You can do it. Keep going. I don't know whether she could even hear me because the sound was, was, was pretty deafening. So we ran, and uh, as, as we ran, I started to say, God, I can't believe that you got us out of this building just to have it fall on us. And um, something happened at that point, which, uh, which there is a lot of skepticism about, I'm sure, in some quarters. But this is my, uh, my experience, and so I'm going to tell it. I remember hearing, as soon as I said that, that comment, God, I can't believe that you got us out of a building just to have it fall on us, I heard in my head a voice as clearly as you hear me that said, don't worry about what you can't control. Focus on running with Roselle, and the rest will take care of itself. I'm telling you, I heard that. and almost immediately sensed that if we just worked together, we'd be OK. And we kept running. I kept encouraging Roselle. We got to Fulton Street. We got to that corner. And at that point, we turned right and uh, started going west on Fulton because we wanted to get a building between us. And as, uh, as we did that, I caught up to David, who had stopped realizing that he had been separated from us. And he apologized and said, oh, I'm sorry. I, uh, I'm sorry I ran away. And I said, David, keep going. Let's get out of here. So he, he did. He kept going. And we both ran. About, uh, about 10 seconds later, we were engulfed in the dust cloud, all the dirt and debris from the collapse of Tower 2. <clears throat> there was this huge dust cloud that hung over everything. 
for a while after the, the buildings collapsed, but uh, now it was just the initial stage of the dust cloud. The air was so thick, as David described it, you couldn't see your hand six inches in front of your nose. I can tell you it was so thick that we were breathing in more dirt and debris and dust and particles than we were breathing in air. Literally, we were drowning in it. You could feel it going down your throat with every breath you took. So we decided that we had to get out of that. We were looking for an entrance into the building that we were running next to. I kept telling Roselle to go right, go right. Finally, I heard an opening, and she obviously saw it. She continued to guide perfectly, even in that dust cloud. And I regard that as one of the miracles of the day. She turned right. We went into um, this entranceway, and then she stopped. She wouldn't move. And after looking around a little bit, I discovered that she stopped because we were at the top of a flight of stairs. She did exactly what she was supposed to do. So we walked down the stairs. We found ourselves in the entrance to a subway station. About that time, there was a gentleman from the subway service himself from the uh, MTA who came upstairs and found a group of us there. He took us down to an employee locker room where we stayed. There were fans. There was an air, con uh, not air conditioner, but there was a water fountain. There were benches. We stayed there about 10 minutes, and then a police officer came and told us that we needed to leave the area. And then he just turned around and, and left. We followed him up the stairs through the arcade of the, basically the entrance to the subway station, which is where we were originally. Went on up the stairs and found ourselves outside. David looked around. The air was clear. And he just said, oh my god, Mike, there's no Tower 2 anymore. We stayed there for a few moments, not being able to fathom what was going on. Then we continued west, left the area. We walked about 10 minutes and eventually found ourselves in a small little plaza area. We then heard that freight train waterfall sound again and knew that it was our building collapsing. David looked and saw a dust cloud coming, but no debris. We thought we would be safe from flying objects, mostly. But the dust cloud was coming, so we ran to get out of its path. After it passed and the sound died away, we opened our eyes, and David looked around. He then said, oh my god, Mike, I remember this too so well. He said, oh my god, Mike, there's no World Trade Center anymore. I asked him what he saw, and he said, all I see are fingers of fire shooting hundreds of feet into the air and pillars of smoke. We were in shock, I think is the only thing that I can say. It was a very surreal moment. We stood there, then I finally was able to get out my cell phone and tried to call my wife again. This time I got through. She's the one who told us how two aircraft had deliberately been crashed into the towers, one into the Pentagon and one was still missing over Pennsylvania. The rest of the day we, we spent getting up toward Midtown Manhattan. I won't, I won't go into all of that right at the moment. Um, there, there are a lot of stories about what happened the rest of the day, but suffice it to say that eventually I was able to get a train and, and return to New Jersey and met my wife at the train station at 7 o'clock. A friend of ours, Tom Painter, who is a longtime friend of our family, had come to be with Karen as soon as he heard about the towers uh, being hit. And so long before he knew whether I was there or not, he had arrived at our house and was with Karen and stayed all day and then brought her to the train station uh, that night, and they picked me up, and we, we all went home. And then, of course, was the aftermath of 9-11. One of the things that most impressed me, and still is something that I think about a lot, is 
that after 9-11 there was such unity, and there should have been such unity. There was a lot of support around the world, but in the United States especially, people supported each other. People came together. There was a sense of teamwork and unity that I had never seen. I can only imagine that the time before that, that there was such unity, was when Pearl Harbor was attacked in 1941. I remember where I was when John Kennedy was shot, but in a sense it wasn't the same sort of thing because it wasn't an attack on our country in the same way. Although there was such pour outpouring of sentiment and unity for, the, for JFK, but from a, from a real straightforward patriotic semblance of, of thinking, there was so much unity and trust in each other after 9-11. There were millions of stories about people who put flags on their antennas, people who even put flags on their tires or painted flags on, on their cars, people who worked together. Rudy Giuliani in New York was everywhere. He was the not only cheerleader for New York City, but he was a tireless worker doing everything that he could to try to, to start to begin really quick healing, I think, um, and, and trying to bring some semblance of order and understanding to everything that, that happened. He was visible. I remember one, uh, one Saturday, he made a public service announcement in the morning. This was like a week um, after, so it was a week and a half after 9-11. He had already made a commitment to be at someone's wedding. But that morning, he had to be in another part of New York to do a public service announcement and do some supporting things because of what happened on September 11th. And then 10 minutes later, he was at this wedding because he had given his word that he was going to be there. He was everywhere. So many people did so many things. Um, the president of Sun Microsystems, Scott McNeely, flew back to New York within a week to be with his people. Sun had lost one person who was at a meeting up in Windows of the World restaurant on September 11th. So Scott came back for that and to support the, the team. There are so many stories, the, the loss of so many people at Cantor Fitzgerald up on the 101st, 102nd floor, the 98th, the 99th, and the 100th floor, and so on. So many stories of people who worked together. It was, it was extremely impressive, and it lasted for a while. I don't think that New York today is still the same. I think that New York is a, to quote the original senior George Bush, a kinder and gentler New York City, and as, as it should be. I think that there is more reflectivity and more reflection than there has been uh, in quite a while in the city. And there's still some of it today. However, as 9-11 grew further into the distance, we started to see things happen. And there were a number of unfortunate things. Enron, everybody re remembers Enron and, and that whole scandal. Um, our government decided to not only invade Afghanistan, which I think was absolutely appropriate because that's where the terrorists were, uh, but then they went into Iraq. And, and you know, I'm not going to debate 
Iraq and, and everything else other than to say that the problem with going into Iraq was it took our eye off the main focus, which was to deal with the terrorists and those who were responsible for what happened to us and who really brought this about. But we went into Iraq. And that started to sow the seeds of a lot of mistrust within this country with the government and, and started to, to cause a lot of dissension. I have never seen the country as divided as it was this past election. And we don't need that. Because one of the lessons that I learned from 9-11 is that trust is really all around us. We trust in so many ways, and we should trust in a lot of ways. My trust in my guide dog. I learned in, in a very dramatic way how to really focus on that trust and how to encourage that trust. It's an interdependent relationship. That is, we each had a job to do, and we each always have a job to do. If we don't respect each other's job, then we're not going to be a good team. It's something that I had certainly known before 9-11 but something that 9-11 reinforced. And it's not just me and a guide dog. It's all of us, folks. It's every one of us in any relationship that we have, in any job that we have, in anything that we do that involves more than one person or even just involves us and, and uh, becomes a question of how confident are we of, of what we're doing. But we really need to develop a very strong sense of trust Trust is under attack in so many ways in this country today. Trust is under attack not just from terrorists and so on outside, but from all the crazy things that are coming to a head inside, whether it be with banks, whether it be with teammates at work, whether it be in our own personal relationships. We have some control over trying to make those relationships work. And then if we're doing our part, and there is a problem, then we need to make a decision as to whether we're going to allow the relationship to continue or we're going to uh, not have that relationship. And it could be you're going to decide whether you're going to continue to work in a company that is, is doing something that you believe is unethical. I think that we need to think about what we do. I think we need to be very thoughtful about any actions that we take. But I think that we do need to take actions in our own lives. If we choose not to make choices, then we've made a choice. What that choice is is that we're going to allow others to control everything that goes on in our lives. I think there are things we don't have control over. Worrying about them isn't going to help. If you can exert some control and make something better, then you should. Um, there were friends of mine who were extremely, extremely angry with George W. Bush in the 2004 election because of all the things that he had done and ways that he had broken trust with Americans, I think, in a lot of ways. However, they didn't have any control over that. But they were becoming more and more angry. It affected their jobs. It affected their thoughts. It affected their way of life. And all it was hurting was them. You know, They didn't have any control over that other than going out and trying to influence the election. They didn't do a lot of that. So, you know, you can complain, but complain about something that's worth complaining about, which is something that you can do something about. Because if you're not going to have any control over it, it's not going to be very um, effective or, or good for you to keep worrying about it. All you're going to do is worry yourself into an early grave. You know, 9-11 taught me a lot about 
appreciating what I have, appreciating family, appreciating relationships, and also, frankly, it it taught me that there's a lot of stuff that goes on around us that we don't need to put up with. Um, life is too short. I think there's validity in saying that. Life is too short to put up with things. I think that there are times that you be patient. You need to, to recognize that not everyone is, is where you are. I need to recognize that not everybody is where I am. And so I might be impatient with things, and I might express that sometimes, maybe a little bit too quickly. Perhaps some of that has come about because of 9-11. But I do know that if, if I'm going to, uh, to express it, I'm going to try to do it consciously and say, look, this is irrelevant, this isn't necessary, or I'm not going to put up with this, or whatever the case happens to be. I think that, that the teamwork that we showed after 9-11 and the strength and unity that that brought impressed the whole rest of the world. And look where we were by the 2008 election because there was so much dissension in our own country. Um, we, we didn't have that sense of teamwork. Teamwork is something that is, is very important. It's something that a lot of companies strive for. It's something that a lot of companies talk about. And yet it's so amazing how many people can achieve it. It's something that we all need to work on and work towards. I think that it's important to respect the other person's position. There's nothing wrong with genuine, legitimate, real debate. There's nothing wrong with questioning a decision, perhaps, <coughs> or at least questioning uh, whether this is a good decision. Discussion is extremely important, but don't don't debate it. Don't criticize just because you're questioning someone's motives. Don't question people's motives because I think most of us have good motives. We might try to change someone's mind, but do it for the right reason. Don't attack people just because you're going to decide you don't trust them. It isn't the way to do it. It isn't the way that's going to work, and you're not going to uh, to have a, a very successful outcome. So those are some of the, the kinds of things that, that I talk about, some of the lessons that I think um, are important to learn. If, if I had to pick one, I'd say it's we are all an interdependent society. Gandhi put it really well. He said, interdependence ought to be and is as much the ideal of man as his self-sufficiency. We all regard ourselves as, I can do this, or I did this on my own. We, we all do that at one point in our lives. I submit that there is not one thing that anyone has ever truly accomplished that somehow didn't result because of teamwork or because of someone else. Let me repeat that. I don't think that there is one thing that anyone has accomplished or any one significant thing that anyone has accomplished that didn't result because of the actions or the assistance of someone else. Teamwork is all around us. Einstein, yeah, Einstein is credited with the theory of relativity, but he had a lot of teachers and he had a lot of people who helped him in, in some of his work that actually created the re theory of relativity. But he would never have been able to do it if he hadn't had good teachers and people who taught him so much about physics and so many other things along the way. Not one of us hasn't been affected by other people. So it's important that we recognize and that we value interdependent relationships and the assistance and help that we can get from others. There are times that we want to do things on our own, but you know, even when someone comes up and says, let me help you when you're crossing the street, you might say no, you might want to be firm about it, but 
recognize that they're probably doing it with the best of intentions and just say, look, I'm going to do this myself. Don't need help. Thanks very much for the offer, however. It's all about um, recognizing the importance of that interdependent relationship and recognizing that at some point uh, you may want their assistance. And also, by the way, sometimes you may be able to help them. It goes both ways. So you know what? I'm going to stop because I could go on and on and on and talk about lots of stuff. But I think what I'd like to do is to open this up and uh, allow others to talk, uh, ask any questions that you'd like. There are no questions that are off limits in in any of the, the talks that I give. So you can ask any little old thing you want or any big old thing you want. And I'm glad to, to answer it. Uh, and I'd love to hear from all of you. So um, I'm going to unlock the keyboard. And um, we'll, we'll see who comes on. But thank you all very much for listen, listening. And it's been a joy to, to tell the story. I do still travel around and speak all over the place. And we'll continue to do that. I guess that's one other thing I should say. I've had some people say, well, 9-11's gone. It's faded into history. It's not relevant anymore. And I submit that is absolutely wrong. 9-11 <clears throat> and the story of 9-11 and the history of 9-11 is as relevant today as it was in the months after it happened. It will be and ever shall continue to be a part of our history. The lessons that that um, are available from it, what we choose to learn from it, is going to be as relevant in 100 years as it is today. And I can tell you from my own experience it's as relevant because people continue to ask me to come and speak all over the country about it. And so I get hired to do a lot of traveling and speaking. And that's not slowing down, and I don't expect that it will. Anyway, let me uh, open this up, and uh, let's see who's around and what you all have to say. Thanks again. Well, Mike, thank you for this wonderful, wonderful true story. I'm, I'm really – I'll let this talk a second. Personally, I'm very honored – to be here, to be a part of this audience. Let me see if we have questions from our, our audience. Mike, how did uh, Roselle do? At, were there any times when she had problems, or was, did everything adjust pretty well after the whole thing was over? OK, let's see what Mike has to say about that. Good question. Ah, I don't know. I was trying to push Control, and my Control key wasn't working there. Um, on 9-11, she really did well. There were a couple of times that she got hot and uh, was panting. We got her some cold water going down the stairs. Somebody uh, actually, I think, opened up a water machine and passed bottles of water up to a number of people on the stairs, so we had one. But you know, going, going down the stairs and doing everything that she needed to do, she really did a great job. When we got home that night, my retired guide, Linny, um, who was still with us, met us at the door. I took the harness off of Roselle. The first thing those two did was started playing tug-of-war with a bone. They started running around the house as if nothing had happened. Uh, they really set the stage for the rest of us. Uh, it's, you know, we, can, we can move on. We can play. Uh, we, can, we can deal with it. And that was clearly the message I got from those two silly dogs playing um, and, 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 you know, with Roselle, especially just going on and, and moving on in her life. We can move on in our lives, and, and clearly that's something that I learned from her. She, uh, she did well. 
in 2004, she did contract a, a blood disease called immune-mediated thrombocytopenia, which is a disease where the platelets in her body were being attacked by the immune system. Um, and, and the platelets were being destroyed. What that causes is uh, blood not to clot, which means that they could easily uh, bleed out, or or if they uh, they had a cut or whatever, then it would just bleed and not stop. Or if um, if they were bruised, then the bleeding could go on internally. We were able to arrest it and again keep it from getting worse, but it, it got pretty bad until we were able to control it. She worked until 2007 when I retired her. The reason I retired her was that one of the medications that she was taking for the IMT was uh, a steroid that was causing some of her kidney values to begin to go out of their normal range. The veterinarian suggested that retiring her might reduce the stress that she feels, as any dog does, when they're guiding and taking it seriously. Just like any person who's doing a job, there's always an amount of stress associated with anything that you do. So by retiring her, they thought that removing that stress would help maybe bring the kidneys back into the normal range, and they did. Um, her platelet count is, is well into about the mid-range of, of normal where it should be. <coughs> Excuse me, and all the kidney values are back where they should be. They were back in the normal range by June of 2007. So she's doing really well. She is home uh, with us. And uh, she is, in fact, um, out in the other room having just been fed. So she's uh, not fat but uh, and not dumb, but very happy. I'm sorry, we're not hearing you. Um, try it again. Does anyone have uh, another question? And Ruth Ann and Susan are looking at uh, the text chat screen also. I appreciate that. Um, any other questions, please? Well, let me ask one. Basically, you know, I heard your story about how, you know, everybody came down the stairs. There was little panic on those stairs. I mean, yes, uh, David said we're going to die. That's normal. I would probably have said that myself. But, I mean, people were pretty calm or stoical going down those stairs. They're very brave. Um, people were very calm going down the stairs, I think, for a couple of reasons. First, people in New York are used to being in very crowded environments anyway. The subways and so on, people are used to crowds on stairs. But I think that people sensed that it was important to work together to get everyone out and that if there was any panic on the stairwells, then none of us would have gotten out because if that panic had spread, then it would have really been a horrible thing for everybody. Remember also, at least where we were, and I suspect mostly, people didn't know what really happened. There was no discussion, or I should say there were no announcements for anyone saying, oh, there was a terrorist attack and a plane hit the building. Just keep going or evacuate safely. Everything is okay. They didn't do that. So we didn't have any idea what had happened. In fact, I didn't know until after both towers had collapsed and I was able to get through to Karen, and she's the one who told us. So there was a lot of speculation, but we didn't know. I personally like information, but um, but they decided not to tell people, and that was probably a good idea to help keep panic from, from happening. People were focused. There were a lot of different things to help people focus, whether it was David, whether it was Roselle and me on the stairs, whatever, whether it was other things on the stairs. I think people knew that it was important that we work together and get out. That's where I think teamwork is really all around us and that it's a, a real part of, of what we do. And when we're forced to 
break out of our our habits that we seem to be taught sometimes by the media and by a few people of of uh, you've got to just look out for you that in fact teamwork is all around us and uh, we really do work together and we do a lot better when we work together back to you um, uh, this is Joy Jackson in Seattle the um my um, observation is that when you get people in that kind of a situation, frequently they will help each other, and that makes them focus not on themselves. Yeah, there's a, there's a few, me only, but it's a peculiar human trait to help other people and there, thereby help yourself. And what I think is important is that we all need to take that trait and try to expanded into other parts of our lives. Why should we only be doing that when there's some emergency uh, and there's some sort of panicky thing? Why don't we work harder at working together all the time? And I believe that we can. I believe that teamwork is, is around us in our lives. And I think that we have control over that. We have control over whether we want to help make um, teaming more possible and and, and uh, not less possible. We have control over we, whether we want to uh, be more outgoing to people, whether we want to smile and, and greet people or just encourage relationships. And, you know, I think it goes further. We have the obligation to demand that of our political leaders. <clears throat> they think they know it all, a lot of these people, and they they get into this environment of being around Washington and into this secluded, isolated thing. And, and make no mistake, no matter what they say about being in touch, a lot of times they're not. They don't know what's going on. They think that they have the power. They don't. And it is up to us as to whether we want to exercise some of that and demand a higher standard of interrelationship between um, our politicians and us. Yeah, if you work for a company and there's a president and so on, you may not have as much control about over that. But you know, you also may find that you have more control than you think based on how you behave and and, uh, and actions that you take. So even there, I uh, I don't rule out the possibility that you have more control than you might believe over um, how you interrelate with other people. Go. But Mike, also, isn't the ultimate control within yourself that you can you can hopefully have a shot at controlling your own behavior? I think that's one message I'm getting through here, that you didn't know exactly what was going on, as I wouldn't, or anyone there, but you said, calm down, let's try to be calm and take this one step at a time. And David um, snapped out of it and became useful as a scout, teamwork and control of your own behavior. That's about all I can control. I have enough trouble doing that. You certainly have control over your own behavior, and uh, you're absolutely right. That is something that, that we all ought to, uh, to focus on more than, than a lot of times that we do. I think we do have that control. This is Don. Did the rest of your office get out okay, or how did everybody do? Everyone did get out okay. Um, in fact, the, um, the, the guests got out before we did. They, they started down before we did, and they did get out. They actually saw us leave. They were in another part of the building. They came out at a different stairwell, and um, so they were on, on the second floor and uh, saw us escape or, or leave the building. Then they also had, had left the building. We weren't that far behind them, but we were in a different stairwell. All of the rest of the normal people who would be in my office hadn't uh, come into the, the office, as I said, because they, the training was going on and they were out doing other things. 
selling and so on. One of my sales team was on a train coming into the city. In fact, just before Tower 2 arrived, uh, was, was hit, his train arrived in the station under the World Trade Center. As he was stepping off the train, the plane hit, so there was this violent shaking, and the engineer said, just get back on. We're leaving and going back out to New Jersey. The, the train left, so he made it out, and, and so did everyone else. So the office was okay. In fact, most everyone below where the planes hit made it out. There were some that did not for a variety of reasons, but most of the people who we lost were above where the planes hit. I only know of one person who was above where the planes hit who made it out. In Tower 2, there was apparently someone on the 91st floor of the tower who escaped even though the plane hit on the 82nd floor. So he did make it out, but most everyone above his, uh, above where the planes hit is, are, are the people who we lost. Um, Michael, this is Bill in Boise. At the time that the plane struck the towers, I was coming awake um, from cancer surgery, um, and all I knew was in the halls there was screaming, crying, people running, yelling, and I had no clue. It was on the television, I guess, and I think I thought it was a movie, and nine days later, a nurse came to me when you were talking about controlling your own behavior, even though I didn't know it, she came to me and she said that I had helped her, and I had not a clue who she was. Uh, in that moment, she had come into my room. She said I had taken her hand and said, uh, "You'll be, it'll be okay. And I had absolutely no remembrance of this, and it was just really frightening coming just after sure I had not a clue what was going on. It was awful. And I had survivor guilt until the next, when they had the first memorial service, um, I was able to get rid of that guilt. And until then, I, I felt so guilty because I was, even though I was clear in Boise, Idaho, and had nothing to do with it, um, that I was alive and all those other, other people had, had uh, died. Yeah, I uh, know exactly what you're saying. There's so many stories of people who were in different places and, and who had different kinds of things happen to them after or on 9-11. So um, I know exactly what you're, what you're saying. And, uh, you know, I'm glad that so many people did make it out and, and that so many people do continue to remember in one way or another. Any text chat, uh, ladies, up there? I don't want to miss our good text chat people. No. Okay, a couple of more questions. Any anything else anyone wishes to ask here? This uh, this is Larry Gassman, Mike. Uh, this is a question that you may have already answered before, but I, since I've been sort of hit and miss, I've been here for a while. Then I had a phone call. Then I had to get out and come back, come back, get out, etc. So if you've answered this one, then you can email me your answer later on rather than doing it twice. It doesn't matter. Um, it has to do with. Um, a lot of times when, when blind people get into situations when there's a lot of stuff going around them and, and it's, you, know, you don't know what's going around because you can't see what's going on around you, it sometimes makes things rather tense, especially you don't, you don't know what, is someone going to throw something at you, is a piece of building going to fall on you, is a beam going to fall on you? You know, you don't, you, there's the unknown, but you don't know how to react to it 
because there's just too much stuff going on around you, and I don't know if you've answered this before, but I'm just curious as to what it felt like for you and what it was like and how you dealt with so many different things going on around you that you normally wouldn't have in a situation like that. Um, Larry, good question, actually. I think the best way to answer it is that there there are different times and different parts that we have to, to, to address. Let's talk about, first of all, when the plane first hit our tower and so on and we felt it swaying and so on, no one knew. That is where we were, of course, or, or around us. No one had any clue as to what happened. Uh, the building was, was moving. Uh, so uh, again, I think everyone was just afraid that we were going to fall to the street, as, as David uh, and I talked about doing. Then as we were going down the stairs, well, and then afterward, certainly I was listening for any creak and groan in the building. You know, is it going to fall on me, even though we're going to try to get out and so on, for those few minutes before we got in the stairwell? And I guarantee you, all the way down the stairs, I was listening for any sound that might be a, a creak and a groan and something that was going to indicate that the whole thing was going to collapse. But I also, as I was listening very carefully for that, kept thinking, you know, if it does, nothing you can do about it. Uh, so don't panic. Don't don't do anything to misassess as much as you, as you can. When we got outside, it was was uh, very quiet because all the traffic had, of course, around the towers uh, died away except for uh, a few sirens and so on. And then after Tower Two collapsed, or as it was collapsing, of course, again people knew it was collapsing. I'm not sure that I was at any more of a disadvantage than anyone else because there was no question about it falling. And you know, everyone could only run. You weren't going to have any control over what what happened to you other than just trying to run to keep out of the way of things. I uh, have a have a friend who was a um, um, a doorman and a, um, what would be the time? I guess just a doorman at the World Trade Center Marriott, which was uh, right between Tower uh, One and Two, <clears throat> and um, he told me afterward that when when um, the tower was collapsing and he started to run, there was a woman in front of him who was just running as, as he was. He saw her get hit by a piece of glass and killed right in front of him, and all he could do was keep running uh, because there was, there was nothing else to do. You know, sometimes all you can do is run. But mostly, I'm not sure that it's a whole lot worse situation for blind people except to say you've got to keep your head. And you have control over whether you keep your head and observe what goes on around you. That's true of anybody, but it certainly is especially true of blind people who grow up and are, and are mostly taught whether intentionally or not, well, you really don't have the same uh, ability to know what's going on around you, so you need to, uh, to, to recognize that. Well, we don't necessarily know everything that's going on around us like people who can see do. On the other hand, we oftentimes know things that go around, uh, go on around us that, that they do not. It all goes back to keeping your head and trying to keep your poise as much as possible. I've had a lot of people say to me after 9-11, and I've read on a lot of listservs, people say, well, why do people make a big fuss about Mike Hinkson and 9-11? Any blind person with a guide dog or any blind person could do that. And my response is, that's absolutely not true. It, it isn't me. First of all, it's the team. And second of all, um, if, if people can't keep their poise or, or try to keep their poise, if people don't observe what goes on around them, then 
you're not going to be able to be as successful at doing the kinds of things that we were able to do and that we were blessed to be able to do on 9-11. So I think that it all comes back to, as Bob said, Bob Acosta said, what control you choose to keep over yourself and what you choose to learn and how you choose to use the skills that God gave you and, and um, how to, um, to take the information that you get and, and analyze that as to, to what you need to do at any point in time. I hope that uh, helps answer the question a little bit. Mike, it really does, and I, I'm almost speechless, but I think we're going to wrap this up. This, um, well, let me try this again. Certainly on behalf of Accessible World, I want to thank you for being here. This is quite a story. I think a little luck enters in as good as like the lady with the glass being killed. She was unlucky. It didn't matter whether she could see or was blind. It was her time to go. And thank God it was your time to stay, to tell this story, to keep us aware of it, to never let us forget. And uh, I, I totally agree with you on teamwork. Our beloved founder, Pat Price, when she founded Accessible World, said it's not about labels. It's about blind people helping blind people. It's teamwork with her sighted friends, of course. It's teamwork. She didn't say teamwork, but that's what it was. And you're carrying this on, Mike, and we thank you so much for being here this evening. We have a question on the t text chat. Um, Mike, what is your business today? What do you do besides speak? Um, in addition to speaking, I was actually asked to direct a national sales effort um, for the National Federation of Blind, the KNFB Reader Mobile. For people who don't know about that, it's, um, it's, it's literally software like the K1000 or the Kurzweil Reading Machine that reads print out loud, except that this resides on a cell phone. And by the way, if anyone wants to learn about that, <coughs> we'll be doing a presentation tomorrow at www.throureyes.org -E -E at 5 o'clock California time, 8 o'clock Eastern time um, about the reader and, uh, and what it does and how it works and so on. So um, I, I sell that and uh, we have other people that I've, I've brought on board to help sell the reader. Uh, so I'm doing that. And I also do some inclusiveness and diversity training. Mostly though, a lot of speaking and a lot of uh, sales of the KNFP reader. If anybody wants a reader, don't hesitate to, uh, to contact me at info at michaelhingson.com and I'm glad to, uh, to, to give you any information or whatever about that as well. We did a, a uh, presentation on that actually on Tech Talk here a few months ago and that, that uh, is still archived somewhere and we also have it on our website. Well, Mike, again, thank you so very much. This will be archived. And, uh, you know, I don't get into numbers on these, uh, in these rooms because I say I was here, and I'll never forget this, and uh, it'll be sent worldwide uh, via the Ethernet, and we get a lot of hits on these things. So uh, I thank you so much, Mike, for being here. This was wonderful. Thank you, um, Mike. This is... Uh Vinny Samarco, formerly from Linden, New Jersey, but now up in Canada. And uh, I definitely can relate even location to all that you've been talking about. This is a very moving story. And I'm, I'm interested in hearing more stories of people uh, and how they survive. Because where I am, we didn't get to hear very much um, from here about that kind of thing. But anyway, thank you so much. And uh, Lord bless. 
Absolutely. And let me say that on the 26th of uh, May, two weeks is it, from today, Ed Cooney will be back discussing the topic at the same time, same place, same station. Richard M. Nixon, the president without an anchor. And Ed is very good. I hope you'll come by. We'll be, we sent a release, but we'll remind you again closer in. So thank you, Mike. Thank you, everybody, uh, for being here tonight. My pleasure. I'm glad to have been here. By the way, let me make a suggestion to anyone who's interested. Um, we want to hear more stories or read more stories. About a year after the attacks on the World Trade Center, Dean E. Murphy, who was a New York Times reporter, wrote a book called September 11th and Oral History. What he did is he went and, and captured the stories of 43 different people. He took down their stories word for word and published those in a book. So that book, I would assume, is still available somewhere. Our stories in there and a lot of other interesting stories are in there. So if you really want to get a, an interesting perspective on stories around the World Trade Center towers as well as the Pentagon and I think around the, um, the area in Pennsylvania, September 11th, An Oral History by Dean E. Murphy is a great book to get. Facebook or Instant Messenger? Sorry, I missed that, please. Or Instant Messenger? I heard Instant Messenger. Let's see. Joanne Stark. Ruth it's Anna Joanne, Costa. I think, trying to uh, speak here. What about Instant Messenger, Joanne? I think she's asking if he's on Facebook or Instant Messenger, Bob. Um, I am not. I've had problems making Facebook work. I am on Twitter, M. Hinkson. And uh, you can go to my website. And, and leave comments and so on there. But Twitter is, is where I tend to be the most. Twitter and LinkedIn, L-I-N-K-E-D-I-N, are the two that I've used the most so far. And on June 1 uh, in Tech Talk, we'll have a discussion of Twitter. And on June 15, Facebook. So we're slowly trying to keep up here with all the technological changes. Are you going to give me a, an official adjournment? Oh, I'm sorry. When I said it was officially over, we're adjourned. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, too. <laughs> Thank you.